I counted 62 ladies, Tim, but there were 63 men last week. It's unfortunate, yeah. I actually don't know how many men there were. I don't think there were quite as many, to be honest with you. 68? 45? Oh, I keep getting new numbers. I don't know what's right anymore. They were a much better looking choir than we were, though. I can assure you of that. So as we uh, conclude Second Peter this morning, this is it. We're looking at the last five verses of the book. And then next week, Pastor David will be back, and he'll be giving a sermon regarding small groups, talking about going from the rows in this sanctuary to the circles of small groups. And so if there's over 700 of us in here, usually between our two worship services, it's very difficult to find community among 700 people. And so we have small groups as a way to get smaller and to get more in-depth into God's Word. And so we only model this from the teaching of Jesus who went from 12 disciples to an inner circle of three and then the one Peter. So this is biblical. So next week we'll be talking about ways that those of you that are not in small groups can get plugged in. So I hope you'll be here next week. And then in September, we'll be looking at our stewardship emphasis for the year, ways that we can maximize our finances for the kingdom of God. So that's what we're going to be doing over the next four to six weeks. But before we do that, we must give Peter his due as we close out the book of 2 Peter. In honor of the final five verses of this book, I would like to ask for you to stand as we honor the reading of God's word this morning. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, this is what Peter tells us. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. As he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. As we have been going through this book all summer, remember Peter is writing to groups of people that are dealing with false teaching and false prophecy. And how do you remain true to God's word when people are taking the text and manipulating it and distorting it to mean whatever they want it to mean. And so that's what Peter's dealing with here. Remember, he's writing at the end of his life. So Peter doesn't have very long to live. He's about to experience persecution at the hands of Nero, and he will die. And so literally, as he's writing these words here, these are some of the last words that we have of Peter, period, because he's nearing death as he writes this letter. And he closes his letter dealing with pretty much the same issues that he's dealt with throughout. What do you do when the Word of God is under attack? And he begins, verse 14, really looking back earlier in the chapter to what Pastor David taught on last week, which is when Jesus comes again. 
When Jesus comes again, Peter is telling his audience here to be diligent and to try to remain spotless and and unblemished. That's what he tells them here. Now, I know some of you in this room probably grew up hearing your parents or your grandparents tell you this, because I know I had it. When you're leaving off to go with your friends in high school or college, they might have said, now remember to behave a certain way because you don't ever know when Jesus is going to come back. Anybody ever had their parents say that to them before they left to go hang out with their friends? This is a reminder that our behavior in the last days, whenever Jesus decides to return, we want to be conducting ourselves in a manner that would be pleasing to God, not unpleasing to God. That's essentially what Peter is telling his audience here. Attempt to remain unblemished and spotless until the day of the Lord. And so he takes this image, which we get from the Old Testament, when the Israelites had to atone for their sin, they would take an animal, an unblemished and spotless animal, and they would put it on the altar, and that would atone for their sin. And so Peter's giving a sacrificial image here to remind us, hey, this is the way we should be trying to behave when Christ returns. What's interesting is that when you begin to think about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, particularly the type of animal that the Israelites were commanded to bring, it was a good animal. It was the cream of the crop. It would have been very easy to bring the sick animal, the weak animal, and bring that before God and say, this is my sacrifice to you. But no, God said, I want you to bring the best that you have. So not only was it a sacrifice that atoned for their sins, it was a sacrifice to the Israelites personally because they gave up something of significant importance to them. And Peter's reminding his audience, I want you to be unblemished and I want you to be spotless. Well, that presents a problem for you and I because what do we know about our inner core and our nature? It is not spotless and unblemished. Paul reminds us in Romans over and over again that we are inherently rebellious, wicked, sinful, crooked individuals who don't deserve God's love. But he uses this verb here that we find in verse 14, the verb for being diligent. It's used three times in Peter's epistles, and it's used seven times in Paul's epistles, and once in Hebrews. It's only used 11 times in the entire New Testament, this little verb, be diligent. And Peter uses it here. Why does he use it? Well, the reality is, for you and I to live unblemished and spotless lives, which, by the way, we can't attain perfectly in this life, we have to be diligent at doing it. We have to work at it. It's not something that comes natural to us. And then Peter ends this verse with this little two-word prepositional phrase, at peace. So I want you to do me a favor this morning. We're going to do a group exercise. I want you to take a deep breath in, everyone in the room, and now take it out. And remind yourselves this morning that God is sovereign over every minor circumstance and detail in your life. And Peter reminds his his audience that as you're being diligent, you need to be at peace. I was listening to a podcast a few weeks ago, and the lady was talking about how to raise alien children. What I mean by alien children is not actual aliens, but 
children that follow Christ and that stand out and stand apart from those that are not Christ followers. So how do you be alien? How do you be a foreigner in a land where everybody tries to behave the same way? So that's what the premise of the podcast was on. So how do you raise alien children? And she was talking about this, and she had a friend of hers that's a school counselor. And they got to talking about the numbers are showing now that anxiety and depression is escalating at a much younger age. So it's not just adults that are dealing with these issues. It's young children that we see beginning to struggle with anxiety and depression. And she asked her friend who was a school counselor, what do you think the reasons are behind this? And without hesitation, the lady said, overcommitted children. Notice what she didn't say. It wasn't academic standards. It wasn't unstable family lives, although those can contribute. She said, our children are overcommitted. They go to school from 8 to 3 or 8 to 4, then they go from this activity to the next, sometimes five, six days a week. They get home late. Uh, They don't eat healthy. They're sleep-deprived. They're overly tired. And this leads sometimes to anxiety and depression. So for adults, this would be even more true. You and I, in many ways, are overcommitted. We go from one appointment to the next. We go 90 miles an hour all the time rarely taking time to take a deep breath just as we did a moment ago and be at peace. It's okay every once in a while to take a nap on Sunday afternoon. It's okay to veg out on the couch occasionally and watch a movie with your family. I'm in no way saying that we shouldn't be involved in activities. I'm saying that we need to be wise in the number of activities that we are involved in. It's difficult to be at peace when you're on the move. And so as Peter continues to write, he reminds them, let's try to be unblemished and spotless. At the same time, try to be at peace. And then he reminds them that they need to be disciplined in their study of the Word. And interesting enough here, Peter actually mentions Paul by name. It's kind of neat when you see some of the apostles mentioning each other in their letters. And we have see Paul doing this with Peter in Galatians 2 when they had that big fight over table fellowship. And here we have Peter mentioning Paul. And he says, you know, some of you guys are reading Paul, so at this point we know that Peter's got access to at least some of Paul's writings. We don't know which ones, we don't know if they're finalized, but his audience and Peter himself have access to some of Paul's writings at this point. And Peter says, some of you guys are reading Paul and you're getting confused. Because sometimes, if we were to be honest, Paul's really hard to understand. If you've ever read the book of Romans, you know that Paul is hard to understand. So Peter's not telling us anything here that we don't already know. The reality for you and I is when we study God's word, Let's just be honest with each other. It can be difficult to read sometimes. And I'll take that one step further. Not only can it be difficult, there are many times when, if we were to be honest, we just don't want to read it for a variety of factors. Some mornings it might just be easier to sleep in. 
Some days it might just be easier to go on into work and begin checking emails and hit the ground running. Some evenings, if you read at evening time, it's just easier to watch a TV show on the couch and then go to bed. It's natural human nature to not want to be disciplined in any area of life. And the truth is the same with God's Word. Oftentimes when I read Jesus or Paul or Jeremiah or Isaiah and I get to a part that's really confusing, oftentimes it's just much easier to quit reading instead of actually digging and doing the work and finding out what Jesus actually means or what Paul actually means or why Jeremiah is calling the Israelites these terrible names, which he does throughout the book. This is when we must dig deeper and be disciplined in our study of God's Word. Not only is it hard to understand, not only sometimes do we not want to, sometimes we don't like what it says. I mean, when Jesus says, in order to be a follower of me, it might require you to abandon your mother and your father and your children. That's not easy to swallow. And it's also not hyperbole, as some think. I would venture to say for some of you in this room, the day you chose to follow Christ was a day that the relationships with your parents, maybe your children, maybe your friends, became strained. Jesus wasn't exaggerating when he said that. That's reality. So if any of you in here have strained relationships because of your relationship with Christ, you understand that passage exactly. And it's not easy to, to follow the teachings of Jesus that say, pray for your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and take it one step further than just pray for them, forgive them. That's not what culture would tell us to do with our enemies. So being disciplined in the study of God's word causes friction in our relationships and it causes frictions in a number of other areas. But we have to be committed and disciplined to studying it. Many of you know that I am a creature of habit. I wake up the exact same time every morning. I eat the exact same breakfast seven days a week. I eat the exact same lunch five or six days a week. So many people would say, you're a very boring individual. <laughs> but for me, being a creature of habit keeps me disciplined in the Word. That's just what works for me. If you take me out of my routine, this goes with it. Not everyone's like that, but for me, that's the way I operate. Take me out of my routine, my time in the Word goes with it. So we have to develop and decide what works best for us as we carve aside time to study God's Word? So why are we disciplined for studying God's Word? Why do we do it? Well, for the exact reasons Peter tells us here. Because when we're disciplined in studying God's Word, we will not be persuaded when other words come about. Lowercase w. Prophecies. Inaccurate interpretations. People saying things about the Word of God that are not true, are not even there, or that are out of context. So we're less likely to be able to defend what God's Word says if we don't know what it says. And so we study it, so we can defend it. Peter says here that 
These people were taking what Paul's letters were saying and they were distorting it. And they thought it was helping them, but Peter tells us here, it led to their destruction. We have example after example of this in history. Do we not? Let's just take the most well-known example. The Reformation. The church is selling indulgences, trying to tell people that your sins can be forgiven based on your good works. Martin Luther, who's a preacher and a theologian at this time, looks around and says, this just doesn't seem right. And he goes into God's Word and he reads Romans 1.17 that says, the righteous shall live by faith. Not the righteous shall live by their good works. And so this sparks an instant change in the history of the church. People were believing the authority of what the church was teaching over against the authority of what God's Word taught. If you're ever involved in a church that puts their authority above the Word of God, get out. Get out immediately. No church, First Baptist New Orleans, doesn't matter. No church trumps the authority of this book. And so we study it, so we're not persuaded, so we're not turned away, so we're not susceptible to falling to false prophecies or interpretations that are inaccurate. That's why we study it. And as you encounter people in your workplace, your neighbors, family members, and as you share the truths of Scripture with them, I want to remind you this morning that it's not going to be popular to tell a friend of yours who thinks that their salvation is based on the amount of good things that they do, that that is not true. It won't be popular to remind people or to teach them the words of John 14, 6, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to God except through him. That won't be popular. It won't be popular to tell someone that you disagree with the way they're living their life because it doesn't align with what God's word says. We don't align our lives with culture. We align our lives with this book. But notice how Peter closes in this final verse here. So you know God's word, so you can defend it, so you can tell people what is true. But he says very clearly that as we go about doing this, sharing, we go about doing it to grow in grace. And this is very important. As we share our faith with people and as we teach them about Jesus and his word, we share with them God's grace. So you and I are on this spectrum between living a life walking in God's grace or a life walking in legalism. So when we read the teachings of Jesus regarding the Pharisees, we look at those Pharisees and we're like, they are really messed up. But the reality is, you and I really kind of like the Pharisees. Because the reality is, if you and I could just have a list to go by and check off, 
that's something that for the most part we could manage. You give me a list of things that I got to get done and I'll find a way to do it. But when we walk in God's grace, we are completely dependent on Christ. We can't do any of that. We can't walk by grace on our own. So we can manage a list of rules and regulations over here on the legalism side. We won't get it 100% right, but we can manage it for the most part. But to walk and grow in God's grace requires complete dependence on Jesus Christ. So as we go about teaching God's word, sharing God's word, even the difficult passages that might not be popular, we do it through God's grace. Not in a judgmental or arrogant way. We do it in a gracious way. Not only does Peter say to grow in grace, he says grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now knowledge can be a really, really dangerous thing. Because what do we know about knowledge? It puffs up. It can make us arrogant. It can make us unrelatable to other people. There are people that I read and study that know the Bible much better than I do, even the New Testament from an academic standpoint, but it hasn't transformed anything in here. So we can have knowledge of Jesus, knowledge of the Bible all day long, but if it doesn't transform the way we live our life in our hearts, then it's just like any other knowledge. But we still learn and we want to know more about Christ because as we grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, our witness for him is enhanced. We can tell people why we believe the things that we believe. So we grow in grace and we grow in knowledge. And we're walking this spectrum between living a life of legalism and living a life of grace. Your good deeds do not cancel out your bad deeds. Your good deeds are also no indication of future behavior. Let me give you an example of this. There was a study done in 2010 by some sociologists from Stanford University. And the study was on the phenomenon known as moral licensing. Do we have any sociologists in the room? Okay. So I'm teaching you something good today. Moral licensing is the phenomenon that when people have done good things in their past, they're more likely to engage in unethical or immoral behavior in the future because of their past success being moral. Does that make sense? So it frees you up. If you do good things, it frees you up down the road to say, well, because I've done these good things over here, I think I'm just going to let it slide this time and behave immorally. This is moral licensing. And so these scientists asked a group of people to come in, and they did this a couple of different ways. One way is they asked two groups of people to come in, and they said, this group over here, I want you to recall a time when you did a good thing, a good deed, when you made a moral decision. And then they had a group over here, and they said, I want you to recall a time when you made a bad decision, an immoral decision, something that was not good. 
So both of these groups shared with the scientists, and then at the very end, the scientists said, and by the way, if you would like to uh, help us out, we're, we're going to be donating some blood, feeding the homeless, participating in community service hours uh, through the university. If you would like to help us out with that, just sign your name and we'll be in contact with you. And what the scientists found were those that recalled a time when they had been doing a good deed chose not to sign up to do more. But those that had done a bad deed were the first ones to sign on the dotted line. So they did it another way. They brought in participants. They gave them each $2. And they told this group over here, I want you to just imagine in your mind doing a good deed. And the scientists gave them a list of things to imagine themselves doing. So they did it. And then there was a group over here. And they told them, I want you to imagine yourself not doing a good deed, not being generous. And they did it. And at the end of the study, the scientists said, by the way, we're, we're collecting money for some charitable organizations. If you'd like to give back the $2, we'll put it towards those resources. So the people that were asked to imagine doing a good thing kept their $2. Those that had imagined themselves doing the bad thing gave the $2 back. This is moral licensing. Let's bring this home to us. Let's not keep it out in Stanford. You're involved in a care effect ministry. You feed the homeless on Wednesday night, you teach at the nursing home, you teach at the prisons. You do this week after week after week. And then a few days later, you see injustice happening right in front of you. And you say, you know what, I, I could engage in a way that would be helpful, but I really, I've done these moral things over here, and so I think I'm just going to take a pass this time. This is human nature, okay? This is moral licensing at its finest thinking that we are justified in the future because our good deeds that we have done in the past. Your good deeds don't cancel out your bad deeds. Your bad deeds can only be canceled out through the cross of Jesus Christ. So we participate in good deeds and doing good things not as a way to earn salvation or to gain God's grace. We do it out of an overflow of the free gift of salvation that Jesus Christ provides for all of us. That's growing in God's grace. Moral licensing is growing in legalism. Thinking that if I continue to do good thing after good thing after good thing, all of my bad things are just going to go away. They'll cancel them out. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. Which is what Martin Luther thought when the word of God was being distorted during the Reformation. So, as Peter finishes his book, he goes back to the thing that he started talking about in the very first chapter. How important is this to you? Simply put, is it something that's important to you when it's convenient, when things are going rough, or is it important to you every day 
of your life. Will you bow your head with me this morning? God, I am thankful that the salvation that we have in you is not based on anything that we can do. Because we would fall short of that every time. Lord, I pray as we go about our day and as we go about our lives and people at work, our neighbors, that we would grow in your grace. That we would teach them the truths of Scripture in a gracious and loving way, not from a perspective of condemnation and judgment. Lord, we thank you for Peter's boldness as a disciple. We thank you for his boldness in this letter for the way that you used him to make your name known. And God, I pray that you would use us to make your name known. In our families, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs, in the organizations that we're involved in. Help us to not be just casual about talking about you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for teaching us through your word. God, so many people around the world don't even have access to this book. And we have the freedom to read it whenever we want. Help us to remember how blessed we are. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.